The nail in the coffin! Finally, right along with Travis Uli, I am Tom Valentino, and after an unplanned hiatus last week, this is the nail in the coffin. Trav, it feels like it's been an eternity since we've done one of these. Yeah, you and I have talked quite a bit since then. We just haven't been able to get anything on tape for it. Yeah, the uh, technology is conspiring against us. We we had a guest uh, lined up um, originally for last week, and uh, the, the tech problems derailed that. And then um, she unfortunately uh, fell under the weather when we were going to record earlier this week. And then we had quite a scare from Kevin Love last night, just as we were about to record, and thought that might uh, completely render any Cavs discussions we were going to have at that point uh, null and void. So I think we're finally safe to uh, give this thing a try. Onward and upward. Let's do it. So the Cavs are officially in the All-Star break now. They're at 38-14. and 14. They are three games clear of the Toronto Raptors for the best record in the Eastern Conference. How are you feeling about our prospects right now? Well, I, I think, I don't know, I, I might be in the minority in that I'm not as, as concerned or worried about the Warriors, which seems to be all anyone really wants to talk about, which is understandable considering the... Uh, ridiculous run they've been on to start the season what are they 40 48 and 4 sounds right yes which is which is insane like uh, yes give them credit it's absolutely nuts what they've done best 52 Um, game record in the history of the nba there you go and it feels like it considering how much we've had to uh, hear about them since the season started but um no overall i think it's hard to be 100 percent happy with the Cavs so far but all in all, I've seen enough good, I think, to feel okay about the second, not necessarily the second half, but about the uh, tail end of the season here. And you'd really just like to kind of see him get into the rhythm of what Ty Lu has said he wants to do in terms of playing a more upbeat, uh, fast-paced style. And if they can get that going, they got 30 games to work on it. If they can turn things around uh, or improve at the level that they did last year after that trade, um, you got to feel good about their chances going into the playoffs. I think, I don't know, it, it almost feels like a, a general assumption that they're going to the finals. Are they going to have a chance against Spurs or Warriors, whoever they play? I will say this. I don't think there's anything in the offing that's going to create as dramatic uh, an increase in quality of their performance that the trades ha- that happened at the middle of last season created there's not going to be any kind of an impetus like that but the good news is they don't need that dramatic of an increase we're we're not looking at a team that was 19 and 20 in the middle of january this year i mean 38 and 14 it's pretty damn good um i i will say i think there's some real work to do it's definitely still a work in progress um, but at the same time there are definitely encouraging signs i really like what we've seen from Kyrie lately I saw some great stats from Jason Lloyd in his story today. It's uh, on Ohio.com and Akron Beacon Journal in print. 
he said Kyrie entering the All-Star break, averaging 26.9 points and shooting 50, 56% from the floor in his past eight games and 57% from three-point range, eight of his last 14 from three-point range, which wow. the, the long-distance shooting was a real problem for him for the first month or so after he came back. So finally getting that touch on his jump shot, that's good news. Yeah, I'm, it's it's definitely been noticeable. I didn't notice that it was that drastic, so that's even even better to hear. You, I, I don't know that we've really fully appreciated um, how good of a uh, three-ball shooter he really is and how much the kind of grooves he can get into if he's feeling that. We've seen at times where he seemed like he couldn't miss from three in individual games, but I don't know that people really recognized how consistent he could shoot um, I think they're going to need to count on that probably a little more than they have. They'll need to keep it in the bag um, if and when they need it. I think they haven't relied on it too much. It just hasn't really been their style of play. Um, they've sort of been trying to get him to the basket more. But I think if they can sort of set him up with that inside-out game where he is maybe shooting a little bit more, um, it can open up the lane a little bit more for him if you can get that defender to come out and close on him a little bit too much and he can go past him because obviously he's as quick as anybody in the game and incredibly good at finishing at the basket. So if he can use uh, the shot to set that up, that would be incredible. And I think it kind of changes the way that they, not necessarily changes the way, but uh, makes the way that they're playing a lot more effective. Just overall, I think the outside shooting of the team is going to have to kind of pick up a little bit here down the stretch and I'm I'm feeling like that's not an unrealistic expectation because I mean after the first few weeks of the season I know JR was struggling a little bit early but you get past those first few weeks his shooting stroke from three point range has looked pretty good uh Delavidova has been better way better than average uh from his career numbers yeah, hopefully, hopefully for this, this year and, break here doesn't yeah, so he sat out, what, five or six games now, Something and he's going like to have that, the, yeah. the all-star break. So hopefully he'll be well-rested and, and be able to get himself back into the flow. Outside of those two guys, though, LeBron's shooting numbers from the outside, for the most part, have been way down. Up until this hot streak, Kyrie Irving's numbers from the outside have been way down. Shumpert's numbers from the outside have been down. Kevin Love's even a little bit down from the outside. That's a lot of guys who are really capable of shooting the ball from the outside. And when you've got guys like LeBron and Kyrie that are able to cut to the rim and you start getting defenses scrambling to adjust and collapse and rotate, you're going to start getting guys open from the outside. So I, I, I'm look, that's something I'm going to be looking for over the last 30 games of the season uh, coming up starting next week. Yeah, I sort of, I agree with you on, guys kind of not regressing but progressing towards the mean a little bit more specifically Kyrie and love um because I mean we've all seen in the past loves the shooter I mean he he can shoot the three really well um I I kind of almost like to see you can't seem to give it up completely but I'd like to see LeBron not really uh not really shooting the three much at all Quite frankly, I, I don't. He's never been that good of a three-point shooter, um, and, and it's almost like he kind of forces it. If he makes one, it seems like he feels the need to heat check the next time down the court, um, which I've I've noticed. It feels like it's wasted possessions often. Um, he's sort of, in, I don't know. I feel like he's definitely earned it, but he sort of gets to the point where it's just like, well, I think I can make it right now, and 
So he chucks it up, and yes, his confidence, he's an incredible player, that's well known. He should be confident, but it feels like it's rarely the best idea for him to shoot a three. For the record, just to throw out some numbers that'll support your case, for his career, he's a 34% shooter from three-point range, which is okay-ish. Not, yeah, it's not not lights out. That's not exceptional, and certainly not among the elite three point shooters in the league. This year, he's shooting uh, under twenty eight percent, so twenty seven point seven percent. I knew, yeah, I knew he wasn't shooting very well. I did not realize he was that bad um, from three. It's the other night. I I don't remember which game it was even, but I know he'll. The problem is he'll go on like a streak where he maybe hits two or three. And he'll he'll chuck up another three or four, just trying to find that stroke again. And instead of continuing to, to operate the offense, if he gets those open looks as a uh, as, if that if those open looks are what come from running the offense, great. A lot of times though, they're just spot up, jab step twice, shoot it, and get back on defense. Because everyone knows that it's, I mean, it, it's just an ugly way of playing offense. And we talk about it a lot. And it's not even, I don't know, we, we, you and I often talk about that ISO ball that we see at the end of games. I feel like those sorts of shots, though, aren't even necessarily like end of game uh, shots. They just happen randomly throughout the game and kind of just kill any flow that they might have sometimes. The ISO ball and the other bad habits that you see that the Cavs fall into it definitely in there. I mean, it's the uh, ISO ball. Like we said, it's um, just standing around lack of movement away from the ball. Certain guys over dribbling. Um, those have been things that I know that Ty Lue has said, he's going to try to work the team out of. And I think one of the problems and, and one of the challenges for him since he's taken over it's just a complete lack of practice time. Like the Cavs, it seems like for the last two and a half, three weeks, have been playing a game every other day or they're traveling. And without having a lot of real good practice time, it's really difficult for a coach to implement anything new. And those are some habits that I just think are really ingrained in the mindset of, of certain players on the team. And it's really hard to break out of that sort of thing. So it's going to require a little bit of patience, but it's going to require some work for them as well. Yeah. They have to have a, they have to have a sense of urgency. I think that they might not have traditionally in the middle of the season in practice, they need to almost be in like training camp mode where they're really trying to almost start from scratch um, and sort of reinvent the way that they play. A big part of it, they've said multiple times is the conditioning aspect, but I think just the way that the offense uh, runs, they need to. They don't always seem like they're on the same page, and their instincts with each other aren't always um, perfect because they're not used to playing this way together. Um, I think you're you're right on with their lack of practice. They haven't had enough time to really to work on it outside of games, and I think that's that's probably what they need the most is is just that added exposure to each other where. They're kind of walking through it instead of running through it in the game setting. Are you frustrated at all by the fact that we're basically a year and a half now into this era of the Cavs and we're still at this 
juncture that we're at in terms of trying to build chemistry and, and develop rhythm and things like that, just with all of the, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is that you want just all the turmoil and, and all the turnover and, and all sure. the turbulence. Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody is. I think if you asked, um, if you asked LeBron or Kyrie or, or Ty Lu to a man, they'll tell you, yeah, it's a little frustrating. We would have, we would much rather be, further along and with the talent and um, basketball acumen that we have on the team, we should be further along. Um, I don't think there's any denying that really. Um, We made it to a finals last year and and yeah, by all means they played great in the playoffs up until the finals. I think even the finals with the guys they had available, they played pretty well. Um, But I don't know that we've, what, what do you think the closest we've seen them play is probably the Hawks series last year, the the best we've seen them play with that. With and I mean, even then they didn't have love, but that seemed like when it was clicking the most. There I, are two I, games I, that I, really stand out to me as everything clicking, and it was the Memphis the game at Memphis in the regular season last year. And for whatever reason, they have just absolutely murdered Memphis every time they've played them. And then the other one was game three in the Boston series, the last game before Love got hurt, where it just seemed like everything was firing on all cylinders and you really got to see the full potential of what they could be at that point last year. There have been flashes of it again this year. I mean, I was at that game against San Antonio a couple of weeks ago. It was a fantastic performance against a really great opponent that had every reason in the world uh, to play well. And I know Tim Duncan was out, and I'm certainly not minimizing his impact on what the Spurs do, but they had Kawhi, they had LaMarcus Aldridge, they had Tony Parker, Ginobili was playing, and they were well-rested. They came in with two days off before that, and the Cavs were on the second game of a back-to-back, and the Cavs came out and ran them. It was great. Yeah, I think, I think don't get me wrong, I, I love Tim Duncan. I think he's probably he's probably my favorite player of the last, I don't know, 25 years or so, just the way that he's gone about his business and how good he's really been. Um, for as much love as Kobe Bryant got lavished on him last night, um, if if we went back in their prime, I would take Duncan over Kobe without hesitation. Um, but his impact on the team this season is negligible. He, he provides a lot of experience, obviously, and he's – He's a leader on that team. He tell, he he knows the system obviously better than anyone on the planet, probably, save Popovich. But he's averaging like eight points this year. He's not a big part of what they're doing. He's he's there in spirit and he's kind of telling guys what to do. But they're leaning on other guys a lot more this year. So so I don't even think that him not being there for that game takes a whole lot away from from that victory. And you're right; they looked they looked pretty strong from beginning to end. Last night we saw they they got they seemed like they keep they kept letting uh, the Lakers get back into the game. They were never that into it, but a 20 point lead seemed like it would get knocked down to 11, and then it would get out to 19 and back to 12. And they just didn't seem to be able to to keep that gap there. It didn't really matter because they were I mean they're just way better than the Lakers right now, but. Yeah, we haven't really seen many games. We've seen glimpses in games where they look like, hey, if this is what they're trying to do, this is this is great. If they can keep doing this, uh, they'll be right where they want to be. But we haven't. it's been rare that we see it for an entire game. All right. There, I'm glad you brought up Kobe because there's a couple of things 
that came out of yesterday that I wanted to get into on here. You mentioned he was lavished with praise last night, both on the broadcast and from the crowd at the queue. How did you feel about that? I'm okay. I'm okay with it. I don't want to be this like curmudgeon, but I don't really get I, overall. I hate the, I'm going to announce my retirement at the beginning of a year, then just go on like this. Look at me. Farewell to her for the next six months. I think it's ridiculous. And given these guys like gifts, what do we really think Kobe Bryant did for Cleveland? Nothing. <laughs> he might've done some good. Th- I'll be honest. The NBA would have been fine if Kobe didn't never, never joined. I don't think he brought he, amazing player. Don't get me wrong. Top, I don't know, top five, 10 player, maybe of all time, but top if he, 10. Yeah. I, I would yeah, give you top I, 10. I'm not sure about five. Yeah. That's probably fair. Um, but do, do we really think like if, if he wasn't around, the league would be lesser than it is now? I don't. Someone would have filled that void. So, so when people are like, oh, he's done so much for the league overall and blow, what has he done? What does Cleveland feel the need to celebrate him for? I just don't get that. Like, I didn't get it with, uh, they did it for Mariano Rivera. Like, I don't get it. I, overall, this trend I don't like. Um, I thought the Cavs were okay about it last night from what I saw. They gave him a, a big introduction. It wasn't, I didn't think it was crazy and over the top. It was just, here's his accolades. Here's what he's done. Kobe Bryant. Cool. I don't, I didn't get fans randomly chanting his name and stuff throughout the game. That was weird to me. Like, I don't know. A lot of it just sort of rubs me the wrong way. Like he didn't really do anything for the Cavs franchise. If you're a Cavs fan, what do you really care about Kobe Bryant? Yeah, that that's kind of where I was going with this. Uh, People are welcome to cheer for whoever they want to cheer for. And like you, I didn't really have a problem with anything that the Cavs themselves did in terms of the game presentation last night. But this outpouring, whether it's in Cleveland or it's in Washington or any other city that you've seen along this farewell tour, it just feels off. I, I And I don't know exactly the right way to explain it. I guess for me, I just look at, I mean, Kobe's great and he won five titles and he's got the MVP awards and, and the whole nine yards and he's going to the Hall of Fame and that's fine. But, and, and as far as people in LA, absolutely. I mean, they fiercely defend the guy and I get that. He's their guy and he's been a Laker for his entire career and that's great. But in terms of around the league, I don't ever remember him ever being exactly the most beloved player. Like there's a lot of other guys that throughout their career would get uh, quite a bit of support in other towns. And I know there's a few fans you would hear some cheers here and there, but like this, all of a sudden this love fest coming out of nowhere for him in every road game. It's just bizarre. I mean, like let's not forget earlier on in his career after the Lakers had won their first three titles uh, of the modern era, so to speak, then um, from like, I think it was the 2000 to 2002 range. I mean, he basically ran Shaq out of town and then he yeah. had clashes with Phil Jackson to the point that uh, it seemed like uh, about 10 years ago, he might even force a trade 
uh, off the Lakers and to another team. So, I mean, it's not exactly – and that's not even getting into any of the stuff off the court. I'm not even going to touch that. Yeah, so, I mean, he went on TV and said he wanted to be traded. I, I would make the argument that he probably cost the Lakers more titles than he won them by driving mm, Shaq out of town. That's bold. I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but um, – I mean, they went – what did they go? Oh three to oh nine. I'm thinking they they won uh, the title in oh nine because that was the year that the Cavs should have faced them in the finals, and then they ended up playing the Magic instead, and then they repeated in 2010. They beat the Celtics. So they went. I mean, they had a six year span of pretty uh, mediocre uh, performance. Yeah, until they yeah. traded for Pau Gasol, they they had a few pretty meh years. Right, and, and it's, I don't know, I, I personally have to think that Kobe was just hitting his prime at that point, I think. That's when he really turned into a great player. He was a, he was a very good player in the Shaq years, but I don't know that he was, he wasn't MVP caliber until Shaq left. If you were able to, to combine them, I mean, look at Shaq, he went to Miami and won a ring a couple of years later with Dwayne Wade, who I don't think was on the same level as Shaq, or as Kobe, excuse me. I have to think that they would have been good for one or two more if if he had figured out a way to coexist with Shaq. Um, and truthfully, if the Lakers didn't have one of their former legends as a GM on another team shipping Pau Gasol across to them for a song, who knows if he has those other two? Because, I mean, that people try to pretend like Pau Gasol was a nice little player. He was probably one of the two or three best bigs in the league at that time. You know what? He was, he was, he was more than just a pretty good player. He was people when when they won the first one, people were talking about Pau Gasol as though he might be the best big in the league. He um all right, so I'm I'm going back and I'm looking at that trade. You know, that was the you're 100% right at the time it seemed Incredibly it lopsided. Looks better now with I think Marcus All was in it. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. They had the draft rights to Marcus All, so it ended up in the long run working out okay for Memphis because they were not in a position to contend at the time. But yeah, I, at the time it certainly raised some eyebrows. But you know, speaking of uh, trades and and Kobe uh, possibly forcing a trade, there was that story that came out. I think it was from Brian Whithurst yesterday that that. Um, Kobe uh, possibly could have been shipped to Cleveland and the Lakers had reached out to the Cavs after the 07 season and had proposed the idea of a Kobe for LeBron trade. What did you think when you heard that? Because I have some very strong thoughts on that. Um, It didn't, I think it was, I think it probably, I think it's not as close to actually ever happening as, as that story maybe made it out to be. It sounds more like the Lakers called and said, Hey, if we were to give you Kobe, would you give us LeBron? And Cleveland wisely, I think, said no, probably not. Um, and it was funny. I read in the article, it was like when Cleveland got that offer, they said no, but tried to formulate another trade. And when you remember who was on that team, right? they're like, okay, there's not a single – you could give them the entire roster and the Lakers would not take it for Kobe um, outside of LeBron. And it sounds like Kobe wouldn't have authorized the trade anyways if LeBron wasn't there. So it doesn't sound like it was that close to actually happening. But 
truly the, the way the relationship that the Lakers had that time with Kobe, it would have been irresponsible for them not to ch- test the waters because if you were going to get rid of him, there was no more, uh, no better prospect to go after than LeBron, obviously. And I think the Cavs played that right, even if he did end up leaving a couple years later. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it was a salacious headline and something that could work as cannon fodder for some uh, talk shows and whatnot for the news cycle for yesterday. But at the end of the day, I mean, come on. I think there's a reason that that isn't surfacing until nine years after the fact. Because at the end of the day, like you said, they the Lakers had a disgruntled superstar on their hands who at that time was one of the two or three best players in the league. And they knew that he was unhappy there. And if they had to get rid of him and they had to ship him out, you have to get a blue chip asset coming back. And there's only a handful of those guys you can count them on on the fingers on one hand and LeBron was one of them. So you're going to do your due diligence and at least float the idea out there if you're the Lakers. But if you're the Cavs, you're coming off the first finals appearance in your franchise's history. And it was your hometown superstar who led you there. Like there's no way in hell you're going to seriously entertain that. And he was still early. He had not even entered his prime yet. So yeah, there was the cloud hanging over, uh, knowing that two or three years down the road he could always leave, and I think that that fear may have might have uh, dictated some questionable front office moves trying to shape the roster during his first stint here. But you're never going to trade him in that position, no, so it was never going to happen. And for that matter, if you read further into that story, Kobe had a no trade clause in his contract at that point. He very easily could have said no, and he's gone on the record and said that he would have said no, so it was never going to happen anyway. That's sort of the thing about the article that struck me as odd. Like, it kind of seems even silly to talk about because it was so far-fetched at the time. Yeah, for just seven different reasons, it was never going to happen. Right. There was one of the three parties that that needed to okay it, one of them was interested and floated the idea out and wasn't even married to it. The other two weren't interested. Exactly. So I, I don't know why that even came out as a story. It's more just like, hey, this would have been crazy if we went back eight years and it happened, but it was never actually close to happening. Yeah, the whole thing is just kind of, I don't know. <laughs> hey, anyway, that was a trade that didn't happen. We are about a week away from the deadline for trades that could actually happen. Sounds like the Cavs, bringing this back to the present, have been very busy working behind the scenes, uh, throwing out some trial balloons, so to speak, and uh, testing the market, seeing if there are any options out there. I know we've seen quite a few names floated out and attached to the Cavs. Kyle Korver from Atlanta. Uh, Omer Ashik, uh, Ashik, I don't know. It seems like they go back and forth with how his name is pronounced every other week. Uh, Costa Kufus, uh, former Ohio State Buckeye. Uh, he's playing, I think, out in Sacramento right now. And then uh, Joe Johnson of the Nets uh, It's a buyout candidate, so he might even still be in play past the trade deadline. Do you suspect or would you do you have a feeling that any moves are coming here in the next week with the Cavs? Probably not. Um I mean, I know they have the trade exception, but I just, I don't, like, none of the, Kyle Korver's an interesting name, but where are even his shots going to come from? Um, 
I don't know that. I mean, he he provides a little bit of depth, I guess, and it, it's always good to have an extra shooter. But like a Sheik doesn't interest me at all. Like if if we're not doing anything, to me he's. I don't know that he's any better than Mozgov, and Mozgov's been a stiff lately. Um, Kufos, I he's a Buckeye, and that that's great and everything. I just don't. I don't see him earning any minutes either. There's no one that they can that they can I think trade for that's going to be able to find any time to get on the floor. So I don't, maybe they make a move. I just, I don't see anything happening that actually makes a difference. The problem for the Cavs is just the limited assets they have to work with. Uh, Mozgov is an expiring contract after the season. And in any other year, that would be a very valuable commodity because you could go look at teams that are out of the playoff picture that might have one or two really good pieces that they know that they want to unload because they're not going to be in the long-term future plans. Uh, a classic situation was like when the Cavs traded for Anton Jameson about five or six years ago, that sort of situation. Whereas this year, that expi- and the, the benefit of the team unloading the good player to get the expiring is that they know then they'll have extra cap room that coming summer so that they can go make more moves in free agency and try Everyone to rebuild their roster that way. Yeah, so like this year there's going to be a very big balloon in the salary cap from what it was this season to what it's going to be next season. So now all of a sudden, basically everybody is going to have a much larger threshold to work with uh, until they run into the salary cap. So teams are not going to be nearly as desperate to be shedding salary off of their roster in order to clear room to to go after new players. So uh, a Mozgov contract alone, not really going to be very exciting or enticing uh, as a trade chip. And on top of that, the Cavs have got most of their first round picks. I, I know just from past trades and uh, the Ted Stepien rule, which limits you to only trading your first round pick every other year. Um, they're really limited in terms of draft picks. So outside of the trade exception, it's going to be really, really difficult to put together a package of assets that's going to be worth anything to, to get any sort of a significant return. Yeah. And uh, truthfully, I don't see them being able to get anyone no matter, even if they did have, even if they did make a move, I just can't see anyone that, that they could go and get who would make an impact. You could you could even add a guy who sounds interesting. And, I mean, um, I think someone, I saw someone today on Twitter suggest like a Trevor Ariza type, um, which I don't even know if that's feasible. But I just don't see anyone that they could go get that would actually make an impact and would even really get minutes. I feel like the, the rotations are fairly set while they're trying to figure out um, and stabilize this way that they're going to play. Um, anyone that they were to go and trade for, I feel like would sort of be in the same position as um, like a Verajal or uh, James Jones, even where they just, they're not going to get minutes. So why even really bother getting excited about them? You know, the one other name that I didn't mention before was um, Markeith Morris from the Suns. No. Boy, uh, he might have become very, very available last night when he was seen throttling one of his teammates on the bench. Not a good look. Um, 
probably not a guy at this point you want to bring into your locker room. And it's a shame because until that, you might have been able to talk me into him being the kind yeah. of guy that you want to roll the dice on because yeah, he's been very disgruntled in Phoenix this year. But don't forget, he when he signed his contract with the Suns most recently, he took a discount because him and his brother – uh, Marcus, Mar- is it Marcus Morris? Yep. Yeah. Marcus. So they both signed a contract at below market value in order for the Suns to be able to keep both of them because they wanted to play together. And then almost immediately afterwards, they went and traded his brother away. So he was basically stuck playing for the team without his brother at a below market value contract. And yeah, I understand it's the NBA and, and it's a business and players are going to get traded and you're not going to be able to play with your brother forever. But I can understand why he's pissed off because he left money on the table with the understanding that that was not going to happen. So it, yeah, the team kind of screwed him over. So I don't blame him in that regard for being upset. And I don't think he would hold a future employer, another team. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't think he would hold that against them because it's a clean slate if you go elsewhere. But when you get into a situation where you're fighting with teammates on the bench during a game, that's a whole nother level. That's, that's no good. Yeah. I th- and I think it's sort of, sort of plays into what the general perception already is of him um, as just sort of a malcontent. And yeah, like you said, he was probably getting a little bit of benefit of the doubt because of the situation he's in this year with a team that he clearly feels like didn't really operate in good faith with him and wasn't straightforward or, or you know, forthcoming and honest with him during negotiations. And, and now they're, he has to see those people every day knowing that they, you know, kind of kind of, I don't know, stabbed them in the back or something, for lack of a better term. So you can get some of that, like, discontent, but he's always sort of had that reputation as, as a bit of a hothead and maybe not the most reliable guy. So, I don't know. I feel like last night is probably the uh, the, the nail in the proverbial coffin <laughs> for, uh, Ding! for Markeith Morris. There it is. There's my shameless plug for the evening. Um, but no, I... It, it, it's a shame too because you look at him and his style of play and the type of player that he is could certainly have a position on this team. It's just you don't know. I don't know if he has the mindset or the personality to, to really fit in on the type of team that they are right now. Well, not to tempt you even more, but he, if you look at it, his body of work, if you're looking ahead to future matchups, his body of work in a limited sample size, to be fair, but uh, against Draymond Green. He's done very well, and that is something that the Cavs could really, really use if they would see Golden State in June. Just Certainly. food for thought, but yes. there's other ways to address that that challenge. And, you know, just to put a bow on this, and then I want to move on to another subject, but i, I got to be honest, I, I'm with you. I don't think any trades are going to get made. I don't think any deals are going to get done, and more to the point, I'm okay with that. Just because of all this turnover and everything else that we've been talking about for so long, I just feel like at this point, you need to trust that the players you have are damn good at what they do, and there are signs there that they can they can get it done. I mean, you look at it here. There was one other stat when we were throwing numbers out earlier. I, I wanted to sneak in. Um, David Zavak from Fear the Sword, he tweeted this out yesterday. In 353 minutes that LeBron and Kyrie and Love are playing together on the floor this year without Mozgov. So early on or at any point when, when Mozgov might have been getting a lot more minutes, take him out of the equation. 
and it's just the Cavs' big three, they're scoring 123.5 points per 100 possessions. That's an outrageously good number, uh, and just for reference, the Cavs overall are scoring 106.9. So they're basically uh, 106.9 per 100 possessions. So they're basically, what, 17 points better with, with those guys on the floor. So for all this talk about those guys not clicking and you got to stagger them more to get everybody opportunities, I mean, there's real evidence and, and actual numbers out there that show this can work, but it's going to take some time to just really work through some of those bad habits just to bring this full circle again and and just build some cohesion and get some rhythm. And honestly, if they do nothing else between now and the end of the year but that, I'd be happy and I'd feel good about making a run at it in the postseason. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we sort of hinted at this with the uh, when they made the coaching change. They're almost at a point where you really got to stick with the guys that you're that you're with. You can't keep hitting the reset button, um, and and going backwards to try and to try and take two steps forward. Um, I think they have a pretty good team. We've seen them play very well. Just let them focus on getting better with what they have and go from there. I think. Well said. All right, let's shift gears here. Uh, I want to go in a little bit different direction. You know, we always talk sports on here. Um, I want to float something out that's more in the realm of sports entertainment. Um, kind of relates back to sports in, in the big picture. But uh, earlier this week, um, WWE, Daniel Bryan, a very popular wrestler, one of the top guys in the company, I'd say, for the past three or four years, uh, announced his retirement. Um, I know you are a part-time watcher of wrestling. Did you happen to see any of his retirement on Monday night? I did not see it live, but I did go back and watch it. I watched it on Tuesday um, online. It was pretty – it was it was strong. I thought he gave a hell of a speech. Um, I don't know how much you've watched over – how much wrestling you've watched over the last few years, but I've casually followed it. Um, I'll tell you what. There was the Attitude Era when we were, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s, and you had The Rock, and you had Stone Cold, and you had DX, and you had these guys that were next level. Since then, I don't know if anyone has been as over as Daniel Bryan was uh, like a year and a half ago, two years ago, especially for a guy who's 5'8", maybe an inch or two taller than me, not nothing really impressive about him but this dude was top of the world in in that uh in that industry that is pretty much dominated by huge guys um what he was able to do was just incredible and it's sort of a shame to see it but it's at the same time um it's it's kind of rare to see it in wwe specifically because They've never really been known to uh, focus much on the, <laughs> to, to be generous here, on the uh, talent health, for lack yeah. of a better term. Yeah, so just for everybody out there who doesn't follow this stuff at all, um, if you're still listening through just out of curiosity, uh, the reason Daniel Bryan retired on Monday was that uh, he has had a number of health issues, both with uh, his neck and uh, he suffered 
uh, several concussions. And for the last few months, he's been on the shelf. And as the story goes, he's been trying like hell to get back. And he's gone and talked with a number of uh, independent doctors because the WWE physician wasn't going to clear him. And uh, finally, uh, there was a test done somewhere that really seemed to hit home for him and show him just what kind of damage he's incurred. And it finally convinced him that it was time to move on. Uh, like you said, though, um, WWE seems like um, for whatever reason you choose to to believe, they've, they've definitely, it seems like they've become very cautious in dealing with, with injuries, especially as it deals to concussions. And that actually, and you know, I just think it, it's really just injuries in general. I mean, if you look at where their roster is right now, you know, Daniel Bryan just retired, but the, the number of wrestlers and, and big time uh, top of the card type guys that are on the shelf with various injuries being held out of action, um, John Cena, Randy Orton, Seth Rollins, who won the championship at WrestleMania last year, Cesaro, who was uh, really coming on strong, uh, Wade Barrett, you see him out there every week, but he's not actually doing any wrestling because he's injured. Uh, Sheamus is another one that just got hurt uh, on the women's side. Nikki Bella just got neck surgery. So, it, I mean, it's encouraging, I guess, that they're maybe finally um, embracing this. But the reason I wanted to kind of tie this back to sports is it's pretty amazing to see a wrestler in his prime uh, step back and, and call it a quits um, over concerns over concussions. And I just wonder, as we're getting better testing and better medicine, and we're able to get a, a much clearer picture of the damage that those types of injuries are causing the, the athletes and the performers in the long term, do you think, is this kind of where sports are going in general? Well, I think we've already seen it quite a bit with, with the concussion protocols and whatnot they have in the NFL. Um, but it, it, to, if you've seen, I know wrestling gets a bad rap, like, oh, it's fake, blah, 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 blah. The, the outcomes are predetermined. Everyone knows that. But those guys' bodies take a beating. And if you look at the way that they like train and practice and the routines that they go through, it's a miracle that those guys don't have dozens of concussions apiece already. Um, but I think, yeah, you're, I think you're spot on in general. Leagues are as a whole are identifying that these things are happening and they do have huge long-term impacts on people's lives. You look, I mean, if you look at wrestlers that aren't even really that old, but I mean, have been doing this for a long time. They get their asses kicked, and a lot of them now, like, can't even talk. You can't understand a word they're saying. Um, I think that probably sinks home a little bit. I'm not sure. I think Daniel Bryan probably is still one of the rare ones who is able to sort of look at the quality of life after wrestling as more important. I don't think you're going to see guys retiring because of concussions very often. Um, but I do think sports in general are definitely going that way. I don't know that it's as prominent in like baseball and basketball, but football specifically, it's obviously been a huge point of contention. I'm a natural skeptic. I don't think the NFL cares about it as much as they pretend to. They just want to look like they care about it. Um, 
but overall, yeah, I think everyone in general is becoming more aware of the how serious concussions really can be. Yeah, well said. All right. On that note, uh, I think that's a good place to stop for the week. Uh, before we get out of here, though, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, first, I'd like to put in a plug for Josh Flagner and his Railbirds Nest podcast. Uh, you're on, you might remember Josh from the More Than a Fan Cleveland website. He's been in the podcasting game for several years now. Does a great job. And he actually had me on as a guest for his show this week. And uh, we talked about the newspaper industry and a bunch of other stuff that you don't normally hear us get into here on The Nail, including uh, at one point I had to uh, fiercely defend Seinfeld against friends. Um, but uh, you can uh, listen to Josh. <laughs> You're... Which basically means no one's going to go listen to this podcast now. No, nah, he does. He does a good job. I, yeah, I, sure. I have some my disagreements on the Seinfeld versus friends. I, I tweeted at somebody today who uh, uh brought that up uh, and tagged us both in a tweet. I said simply that there are two people, there are two types of people in this world. There are people that know that Seinfeld is better than friends and there are people who are wrong. <laughs> so, I think that hits the nail on the head. Anyway, though, Josh, yeah, there's a second nail reference of the podcast. I'm killing it tonight. You are you company man. <laughs> anyway, uh, Josh does a good job. It's a good show. I listen to it pretty regularly. And you can check it out at joshflagner.com or just go ahead and look for The Railbird's Nest on iTunes. Second, a reminder, you can always listen to our podcast at thenailpodcast.com. And for you iPhone and iPad users, go subscribe to The Nail in the Coffin on iTunes. And let me tell you, if you haven't subscribed yet, you really, really want to do it now because next week we're going to put out an episode with the biggest guest we've ever had. Did the interview today. Got a couple of loose ends uh, to tie up um, before we can push it out. But uh, that episode should be up next week. And ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be really, really interesting. And for now, I'm going to leave it at that. All right. So, with that out of the way, I think that'll do it for us tonight. So, he is Travis Uli. I am Tom Valentino. This is The Nail in the Coffin. We'll talk to you again next week. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 